All right, tonight, you know, I don't know how this normally goes. I've never been here before, um, but we're going to do something different. And normally I'm given direction, sometimes instruction. I don't do too well with instructions. I tend to do what I'm told not to do. Um, sometimes it's threats. Sometimes it's whatever it is I'm just told. This is what we'd like you to talk about. And tonight, when Lisa invited me, she literally said, we just really love your heart and want to hear from your heart. And that was awesome. It was also overwhelming because I didn't know what I should talk about. And then I prayed through it and really thought about it and thought, I would just tell you who I am, like how I got here to, into this place right now in time, right now. And hopefully through that, tell you what God has taught me about himself and I trust the Spirit will speak to you through that. So if someone asks you, like, oh, what did that guy talk about? You're going to be confused. <laughs> you say, I, I don't really know. There wasn't a theme. Um, so before I can tell you who I am, I want to tell you who my parents are. Because I am their creation. Uh, my dad's name is Basimboulis Faleta. He is the best chess player I know. He loves westerns. Like... Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns and he is the most sincere and tender-hearted man I've ever met and he's from a place in Egypt called Malawi which is in the south of Egypt upper Egypt my mom's name is Samuel Alphonse Habib and she has the most contagious laugh I've ever heard um, sometimes I think she thinks we're laughing at the jokes, but really we're just laughing because she's just cackling and it's hilarious and awesome. Um, she also has a really quick wit and says so many clever things, oftentimes to strangers, sometimes, uh, in anger and it's just makes for a great story. Um, and she's the most hospitable person I've ever met. If anybody comes into her home, she treats them as her own child. And the number of friends I have who adore my parents because of how they welcome them. And so I want to tell you about them because they informed me and who I am and who I believe God is. And so they grew up in Egypt. As Bob said, that's where my family comes from. Um, they were born as second-class citizens. Uh, that was a term I heard from age four, age five political asylum, second-class citizens, oppression. These are things I heard just the same time I was learning about Ninja Turtles. And what that meant is that in Egypt, your faith is not just what you believe. In fact, it can even be what you don't believe. It's still your identity. You may not even believe in Jesus, but you are still a Christian. You literally carry an ID card that has your faith on it. And if you are from a Christian family, and if you are a Christian, you talk differently. You speak Arabic differently. You greet people differently. Your name is different. There are Christian names. And the Christians in Egypt don't hide that they are this minority, that they are this mistreated group. They actually wear it proudly. They tattoo scripture on their arm. They tattoo most Christians, even children, get tattoos of crosses on their hands. So if any of the kids out there want tattoos, tell your parents that other kids do it. Um, but... Yeah, and sincerity, it is your identity, it is your community, it is everything. It is literally a faith that you are willing to die for. And my parents grew up in this scenario where they were minorities, they experienced discrimination, they lived in the constant fear of violence, 
they personally didn't experience violence, but know so many people who did. And it's not just experiencing violence or persecution. It's that when that happens, there is no justice. There's no prosecution. There is no, let's find the people. Just last week, I don't know if any of you read the news, but last week, 30 Christians in Egypt were murdered on their way to visit a monastery for a retreat. And that is not new. In fact, for hundreds of years, uh, the Christians in Egypt have been this resilient group of people who have never once responded with violence to what has happened to them. And that's actually not weak. That's incredibly strong. So they grew up in a place that was, I don't want to just make it all bad, because there are beautiful things about their lives there too. And that's why they stayed there for a long time. They were older than me when they ended up coming to this country to visit my dad's brother. And they were just planning on visiting. They left their apartment. And the next time they set foot of that apartment in Cairo was 23 years later. And the only way I can explain why they stayed here is that sometimes you don't know you are a slave until you taste freedom. And that was their experience. They came here and felt free for the first time in their entire lives. And so I was born here. My older brother was born here. My younger brother was born here. Grew up in Chicago. And as I was growing up, my parents did not hide from us kids the reality of the world. And I wouldn't just say the reality of how they grew up or the place that they come from. I call it the reality of the world because the reality of the world is there is a lot of pain in our world. There is a lot of violence. There is a lot of war. There is a lot of hunger. There are all these things. And so as a child, I knew that what I had, everything I had was a gift. It was a privilege that I was living a rare life. The fact that I never went hungry, the fact that I never experienced violence or threats of violence, the fact that I could literally be whoever I wanted to be, all those things, that was rare. That's not a given in this world. And I, was, I understood that there was a lot of privilege in my life, that not all children lived carefree and got to play and got to be children. Some kids had to work. Some kids didn't have the chance to go to school. Some kids went hungry. Some kids died of the very things that me and my friends would make jokes about, like sickness from diarrhea or dehydration. And what I took comfort in as a child, taking on this kind of like knowledge that the world is dark, what I took comfort in is that, you know, we would hear about maybe something that happened in Egypt to our family or to just this tribe of mine, these people I'm related to by blood, literally, um, if all Egyptians who are Christians are related. That's a side note. <laughs> There's a lot of just keeping it in the family. And um, yeah, when I would hear about these things that would happen there, whether it be my aunt not having the right medicine and not having a way to get it and us having to mail it, or whether it was violence against a group of people, a group of young people, whatever it was, we took comfort because we prayed and we took comfort knowing that God grieved all of that darkness more than we did. And as a very little kid, I knew that when I was tore up about what was happening to my own family and just in general around the world, that God cared and grieved about that more than I even did. And he revealed himself to me in that way. 
Fast forward, and I had this lively relationship with God who I saw as this comforter and this one who takes on our pain. And I actually ended up kind of walking away from my faith, ironically, when I started going to Christian school. I don't know if that says something about me or something about Christian school, <laughs> but not all of them, this particular one, which I won't say. Um, but I, what happened there is I came in as this child who carried these burdens of persecution, of discrimination, of violence, of injustice, and this knowledge that God was not okay with any of that, that he never intended the world to be that way. And I came into school and I unlearned that. I learned instead that God's redemption was really, really narrow. It actually didn't have a lot to say about any of that stuff, that you could actually be a celebrated leader in my you know, school and, and, for that matter, in my church growing up. You could be a celebrated elder leader, the best student on campus, whatever you want to say, and, and the best Jesus follower, and your life could say nothing about injustice all over the world, or in particular for me, the burden I carried about my family in Egypt, that you could follow Jesus and have nothing to say or do about that. That's what I learned there. So that really wrecked me uh, because I didn't want anything to do with that. The, the most devoted act we could do was smash our secular CDs. And I didn't want a faith that was summed up in, there's actually a line in my journal that I put in my notes from when I was 15 years old that I read the other day. You're telling me Jesus lived and died that I'd have the power to listen to the newsboys instead of Pearl Jam. <laughs> that's like, that's how I conceived of it. And it was so small. I call this small Christianity. This is not big Christianity. It was so small. And I was really jaded. I was really cynical. And I could not walk away from God because the truth is when you encounter God, when you truly encounter him, he reveals himself to you. You just don't walk away. You can't. It's like a magnet. You cannot resist him. So I didn't walk away from God, but I certainly was like, I don't want anything to do with the church. If you told me I'd be here at a place like this, I would have said never in a million years, not even for a million dollars. Like it just could never happen. Those aren't my people. You know, that was my attitude. This was when I was maybe 16. 17, 18. And I kept this prayer life alive between me and God, but I didn't want anything to do with the church and I didn't know what I believed about Jesus. And I just kind of lived that way for a long time, for a few years. And then my junior year in college, I, I think because God was speaking to me through, through prayer and through just revealing other things to me and putting specific people in my life, and the biggest thing that was revealed to me that in my cynicism, in my judgment of these people who didn't have anything to say about injustice, I was just paralyzed. I was so cynical that I was doing nothing myself other than hating on people. <laughs> and I wasn't actually doing anything. And I kind of recognized that and realized, like, I'm not the answer. Like, clearly I haven't arrived. I need to learn more. And, and I found myself going back to Scripture and actually reading the Bible straight through for the first time in my entire life. And that was in 2004. And I have literally been flying by the seat of my pants ever since. And that is why I'm here today. And so I want to tell you what I found when I dug into the Bible. I read, and I won't go through, we're going to literally go through the whole Bible, Genesis through Revelation. So sit tight, we're going to be here. 
till tomorrow morning. No. <laughs> I'm actually a really efficient speaker, so don't worry. Um, we are going to go through the Bible, though. <laughs> and I'm not going to highlight everything, but I'm going to pull out the things that God really, really used to change me, to reveal things to me, to teach me things. So I read in Exodus, and I'm going to read just from Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 7 to 10. If you don't know the story, God's people, the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt. Let's get the awkwardness out of the way right now. That has nothing to do with me or modern Egyptians. And that was always super awkward in church. When we talk about the Exodus story, you'd hear about these evil Egyptians, and all eyes would kind of turn this way at our family. So let's get that out of the way. Um, all right, Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And if you know the story, God does deliver them from Pharaoh and does bring them out of Egypt. And to me, when I read that, what I saw, what I held on to was that God, the actually very same God who spoke to Moses and heard the cries of the Israelites, is the very same God who heard me as a child who heard my family in Egypt when they cried out in their suffering, who hears right now the people in our world who are hungry, who hears right now the people who are enslaved, who hears right now anybody suffering any kind of darkness. And this sounds really simple, but this blew my mind. That very same God is listening to us. And I've been in enough big groups, and it doesn't matter if you're in the nicest neighborhood or the worst neighborhood. If you put this many people in a space, there are people in there who are in pain. There are people here who have experienced horrible things. There are people here who have been victims of things, who have experienced violence. And I just want you to know from the deepest part of my soul that God sees you and he hears you the same way he saw the Israelites. And when I learned that, I knew <laughs> I was learning about the real, the real God. <laughs> when I knew that he saw me and he heard me and he cared and he loved me, that brought me further step on my journey. And he hears your prayers and he hears my prayers. So then we fast forward out of the Exodus and we get to the law. And you probably don't hear a lot of preaching from Leviticus in, in the law books because it's just really detailed rituals about how you're supposed to wash animals and clean animals and move animals and uh, how you're supposed to farm and how you're supposed to do all these different things. And there's a lot of laws around ritual. There's a lot of laws around morality. And then there are these laws that specifically protect the poor, the vulnerable, the stranger, the immigrant in the Israelites' company. And there's this one in particular law in Leviticus 25 called the Year of Jubilee. And this law keeps popping up throughout Scripture. We're going to highlight it as it does. But the Year of Jubilee was this insanely radical concept. There was a Jubilee day, a Jubilee month, and a Jubilee year, I believe. And every 50 years, all slaves would be set free. All land would go back to the original landowners. 
all debt would be canceled. How nice would that be? <laughs> all debts would be canceled. This was so radical it would make Bernie Sanders blush. This law was unreal. And the reason why God created this law is because he knew. He knew that left to our own devices, even his people, his chosen people, the Israelites, even his people, if left to their own devices, would live by the laws of evolution, of survival of the fittest, that the strong would take advantage of the weak, that people would get strong by stepping on the weak, that there would not be a system in place to protect the poor, the vulnerable. And so he created this law because he surmised it takes about 50 years for things to get so messed up that it then needs to be reset. So I read that and realized I had never learned about the law in the context of justice for the poor and the oppressed. Then I got to the prophets, and the prophets blew me away. It made me wish that I was named after one of the prophets, Isaiah, Amos, Nehemiah, Jeremiah. And there was a few things I learned in the prophets. Um, what I learned was that God revealed something about his character. And, and, and the prophets have a lot of things in common with each other. They're, they're usually yelling at the people of God's people for worshiping idols and for mistreating the vulnerable people in their land. Those are the kind of the two common themes. There are some other details and other storylines, Nehemiah building a wall, these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, those are the two things that go hand in hand. When you worship idols, you also tend to oppress the poor. When your focus is off of who God is, the God that delivered these people out of Egypt, you tend to then start mistreating his most vulnerable children. And I want to read something from Isaiah 58 that when I read it, I literally wanted to tattoo on my body, um, and I haven't. So if you want to donate to the tattoo fund, no, I'm kidding. Um, this is from Isaiah 58, and this really struck me because God is asking his people here to not just seek justice, but to seek justice in place of their traditional rituals, in place, in this case, of fasting. In Amos, he talks about instead of singing, no more songs, give me justice. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and tie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, your healing will quickly appear, your righteousness will go before you, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. This is the most beautiful part. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, the pointing of finger, the malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, not just donate a, a 10% or a little bit here and there, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness your light will be as bright as the noonday. And I saw in that passage and throughout the rest of the prophets that God wasn't trying to get his people to seek justice as a list of rules or as a list of regulations, but as a way to worship him because he himself is just. He is this rescuer. And that when we do anything that brings the world closer to how he wanted it to be, it's worship. It gives him glory. And the other thing I saw in the prophets was that they were prophetic in their words, 
not just, they didn't just predict the future. That's what a lot of people talk about prophets as doing, predicting the future. They declared the way the future is supposed to be. They declared this is how the world is supposed to look. One day there will be no hunger. There will be no people dying of thirst. There will be no oppression. There will be no second-class citizens. There will be no refugees because there will be no war. They were declaring the way the world was intended to be, the way God wanted it to be. Skipping ahead in the Bible, then I got to Jesus. (laughs) And the first thing that was the point of me wanting to basically sign up and say, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow is just seeing how Jesus was born. He was not born as a king. He was not born as some kind of powerful man. He was not born wealthy. He was born like my parents as second class citizens. He was born and from day one was a refugee. He was born and here's the redemption of my ancient lineage and became a refugee in Egypt and hid in Egypt as King wanted to murder all the boys under the age of two. And Jesus was born fragile. And I love in Luke chapter four, when Jesus gives his first sermon, and this was the point where I read this and it was done for me. All that cynicism melted away. All that anger melted away. I realized that whatever I was mad about, it wasn't at Jesus. (laughs) This is Luke 4, 14 through 20. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. Everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and typically the rabbi would read a whole chapter from the Old Testament because at the time they just had that. That was just the Testament. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah who we just read from, was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is quoted from Isaiah, quoted from Leviticus, the year of Jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor that Jesus is talking about is that very first law I talked about. Jesus is saying the year of Jubilee is here. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that is a first century mic drop. He is supposed to read the whole chapter give an entire sermon, kind of give his ideas about what the prophet is saying and what this means and that. And he just simply reads some of the most powerful words I have ever read and perhaps have ever been spoken in the history of the universe, that he has come to set the captives free, that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor. He said these lines and just sat down and said, this has been fulfilled. And when I read that, I realized that the angry teenager Jason who walked away from his church and walked away from the faith in a sense was not rejecting Jesus Christ, the son of God, was rejecting some sort of weird creation of the last 100 years or so 
that didn't even resemble him and let's be honest wasn't even the right color and you heard that <laughs> and uh and this was the point this was the point after reading this reading through the gospels that I got baptized <laughs> which I didn't even know there'd be baptisms or that I'd be any part of it. But it was that point, I remember reading it on a dock in the Caribbean Sea and reading about who Jesus says he is, not who other people say he is, not who somebody tried to teach me who he is, but who Jesus says he is. And I was ready. I said, I want it. this man has come to redeem all things. This is big redemption, not small redemption, not smash your CDs redemption. This is huge redemption of all things, not just my sins, not just the things that I have done wrong, not just the bad choices I've made, the lies I've told. But this is redemption of war, redemption of violence, redemption of persecution, redemption of hunger, redemption of thirst, redemption of slavery, redemption of trafficking. Jesus, in his life and in his sermons, doesn't teach just about the tiny redemption. He teaches about this huge redemption of all things, that that's what he came to do. And he invites his followers to be a part of that. We read about the early church. These people did not have small faith. These people had die for their faith faith. These people took every risk to be radical, to love. I mean, look at the way they embraced Saul. Saul, who we now know as Paul, had been a persecutor, had been a very man who hunted the Christians. And they not only forgave him they embraced him as their teacher that is radical enemy love that i don't think i could ever be capable of the book of philemon we won't get to that but if you know that no one ever says that's their favorite book of the bible it's just one of these little ones towards the end but read the story of philemon it is crazy and radical the story of philemon is a story about a slave who ran away and according to the law of the land according to the empire according to the romans he should be put to death. And the story of Philemon is Jesus' people saying, that may have been the law since the beginning of time, but there is now a new law. And that love is radical love, radical forgiveness, and he is our brother. And that is a story about Jesus' people standing up to the powers of the day and saying, we, this man won't be put to death. He will be forgiven. He will be welcomed as a brother. And finally, in Revelation, this is the last thing I want to read to you. And I know we're skipping parts of the Bible, but maybe that gives you a hunger to read through it yourself. In Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among them, among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older, old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Hallelujah. <laughs> that is big redemption. He is making all things new. And so 
is I've given you this kind of clumsy journey through the entire Bible and tried to tell you the things God has taught me about himself, the things that repaired my brokenness, my heart. And I have not told you about the discrimination I have experienced, the brutality I have experienced, because I don't think I'm ready to, to be honest. It's not something I talk about. But knowing through what God has taught me about himself, not just as a child through prayer and through the experience of my family, but through scripture, having all that healed, having all of that repaired, knowing that he never wanted it to be that way. That the, I mean, think of how mystical and amazing it is that when we cry out to God, it is the very same God who heard the cries of the Israelites. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so tonight, as we wrap things up, I just want to invite you and challenge you to think about if you follow Jesus with your eye on this big redemption of all things. Because the truth is, it is amazing when you are made right with God. (laughs) It is amazing when through Jesus, his love, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, we can be made right with God. But it is not supposed to end there. We are supposed to be made right so that we can then go and join him in that redemption. He invites us all throughout scripture. And so I want to invite you, and I know this church already does so many things, but think about how this is central to your gospel, to your gospel witness. You cannot share the gospel without setting the captives free. The two are related. One without the other is simply not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you. I want to let you know I'm on the same journey with you.